0: Before we begin, last week, at the end of the episode, I was letting you know that Arkin Games had generously given me 15 keys to AI War to be distributed to the listeners. 10 of them are full game versions for AI War Fleet Command, five are for Zenith Remnant, and five are for Light of the Spire. If you would like either of the expansion keys, Please email me at genocrey at yahoo.com. I have a few of those left. And if you would like a full game version, you need to go to the iTunes The Gray Area podcast page and leave a review. Uh, if you could email me that as well, that would be helpful. And you can have a full game version. I have a few of those left, so please let me know as soon as possible before they run out. And now for something completely different. This episode has been sponsored by Map Hook. Hello and welcome to the Gray Area, where I dispense advice and give interviews on relationships between gamers. My name is Genesee Gray, and this is the 27th episode in a weekly series called Manveer's Rampage. Last week's episode was a discussion with Chris and Eric from Arkin Games. Please visit www.genesee.com to add to the forum discussion on that topic and to tell me your story. Today is Wednesday, July 21st, and today I speak with Manvir Hare, a senior game developer for Bioware and author of the blog Design Rampage. Welcome to the show.
1: Hey, thanks so much for having me.
0: Sure. Uh, Before we get started, let's do news of the week. News of the week, Bastion came out today for the Xbox 360 and was reviewed with an average score of 9, and I can't wait to play it, it looks really amazing. Uh, There's not much else for new games yet, although the Dragon Age 2 Legacy DLC will come out the 26th, and I'm really looking forward to that. I was given game codes for Kaluthu Saves the World, and I'm really looking forward to downloading that and hopefully reviewing with its creator Robert Boyd at some point in the future. I just finished up Psychonauts for the second time as well for nostalgia's sake, and I'm now on Google Plus for the followers as Genesee Grey and Spotify for the music lovers. If you would like an invite to Google Plus, please email me and you can keep up with the news there or listen to my public playlist for Spotify. So Manvere, how about you? What's your news of the week?
1: Um, unfortunately not video game related, but I think I've been kind of fascinated by the whole news of the world, Rupert Murdoch... Uh- big fiasco in England that's been going on with all the, the hacking of phones it's it's like part tabloid and like just gossip but really really kind of evil at the same time so I think it's captured people's attention <laughs> and and the whole pie in the face just made it even more interesting yesterday um so when I'm not working you know I, I have been kind of watching that or hearing about it on the different you know comedy sh- like satirical shows that uh, are making fun of it
0: Okay, I noticed you had some time off from work. So are are you enjoying that and kind of being a voyeur for this as you do that?
1: Uh, yeah. I mean, I I'm working this week, but you know, uh, July I'm taking you know a lot more time off. You know, as we get towards finally, there's a lot more work to do. So like tomorrow is my last day for until August, which is really nice. So I'm going to a different uh, Just for Laughs show every day, which is like a comedy festival here in Montreal. Uh, and there's different comedians from around the world come out, so I'm looking forward to going to like, a different show, seeing Louis C.K., Daniel Tosh, and guys like that, which will be very, very fun.
0: Nice. I'm always curious to ask game designers, and I'm going to ask you as well, what your favorite game is, and I was wondering what game impacted you the most as a player.
1: Sure. It's uh, the same game. It's the it's the game that basically made me want to make video games for a career. Uh, it's the first Fallout uh, I was, you know, in my teens when when the first Fallout came out in the '90s, and it was just this magical RPG that I had never played before. the The world was completely captivating as a post-apocalyptic world. Mm-hmm. The choices that I could make, um, the the moral gray areas, not everything being, you know, good and, good or bad, uh, really spoke to me. and You know, as a as a teen, frankly, I'll I'll admit the hyper violence and the kind of the the funny humor, the dark black humor of the uh, series, Mm
0: -hmm. really,
1: really, you know, worked very well. So I I played that game, and I was like, I want to make things like this. Uh, And then, like a year or so later, Fallout Two came, which was just as good. Um, So that was my favorite series of all time. Fallout, you know, Fallout Three is amazing. I'm actually. Uh, going back and playing a bunch of Fallout 3 because I never got to the DLC and I, I have New Vegas, but I haven't actually gotten a chance to play it yet. Um, but yeah, that game was very, very influential just because of its overall style, you know, uh, and I, I, I've been fortunate enough to meet some people who worked on that project, which is you know really cool just to talk to people who made one of your favorite games of all time.
0: Definitely, I can say that from experience. I really like the Fallout as well, because for me, that's one of the few games where there isn't like a definitive, ooh, it's rainbows and sunshine, happy ending, everything wraps up really well. You know, there's sort of a sad and happy, especially like Fallout 2, you know, it's not all wonderful at the end, and you have consequences for some of the decisions you make. So I like that.
1: Yeah, the Fallout 1 ending, which uh, I'll spoil so any listeners who don't want to ruin a 15-year-old game should probably <laughs> cover their ears now. Um, but, like, basically you get back to the vault, which you weren't wanted to save the whole time, and they kick you out saying, you've seen too much of the real world. Mm-hmm. You can never come and live underground with us again. Like, you'll never be able to. And they kind of, like, cast you out. And it's kind of heartbreaking because, like, you worked so hard to save these people all game. Um, so that just, you know, it kind of soul-crushed me at the time when I when I when it happened, it, it was just very emotional, uh, and I think that was really cool, and it kind of opened up my eyes to the power of video games being something more than jumping on you know, Goomba's heads. So.
0: <laughs> very true. Um, for me, it was Metroid, uh, the ending where Samos is revealed to be a woman was kind of really astounding to me after thinking of her that entire time for weeks and weeks as a guy, and she, it made her easily my favorite character, and I've talked about that before on the show. At the time, there weren't really any strong female lead heroes, and I kind of found it revolutionary. I know you have had several talks and been on panels, I think it was for the GDC, was it not, on the topic of having more heroes of different ethnicities, and I kind of see this as having a similar impact on today's new gamers as Samos maybe did for me when I was younger. Can you tell me about that?
1: Sure. Uh, Yeah, so I spoke um, last year, or not this past year, but the year before at uh, DICE in Las Vegas and at GDC about having more diverse game characters uh, in our video games. And the reason for having more diverse characters, meaning ethnic minorities as well as more females, and I don't mean like big boobs, you know, (laughs) sexy clad females, but more real people in games. And not because it needs to be fair, because the world's not fair, and I don't really care about that kind of equality, but more of that we keep telling the story about saving the world as the white space marine. Mm-hmm. And that story I've played a thousand times in games now. And if we start giving ourselves more realistic and more well-rounded characters, we might start telling or experiencing new stories in games that haven't been hit yet. And I think that could be really, really interesting. Like I haven't seen a, a video game take, that takes place in the south of the U.S. during the backdrop of this, uh, the civil rights movement. Like that could be an interesting backdrop for a game. Um, now, why aren't we exploring things like that? I, I I don't I refuse to believe that it's just not economically viable. I I think we just fetishize you know the overall fantasy stuff and sci-fi stuff, which is great. You know, i obviously I work on sci-fi stuff. I love it, but th- there's more to it. So I wish some developers were starting to kind of explore that. Um, so I want to see just more yeah game characters in general that aren't aren't the white space marine as I call it.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, as you said, that was a year or two ago. Do you think things have changed since you gave that? That's been- uh, I don't
1: think things have changed too much, so I will give major credit to uh, my friends over at Lightbox Interactive who just announced their game Starhawk, uh, which is like the spiritual successor to Warhawk for the PlayStation 3. And they have a uh, black protagonist, which you just don't see in games, honestly. Like The last time I remember a black protagonist in a game is CJ from like San Andreas, and I'm sure there's a couple others out there that are more recent. But that's the one that sticks out. So the fact that they're doing that, that they're, you know, I don't even know if it affects the game or not. It doesn't need to. It could just be there to be different. I think that's really admirable, uh, and I'm really glad to see that.
0: Nice. What is it like speaking at uh, DICE and GDC in front of all those people? I mean, you're a pretty public figure. Do you get nervous? Uh, how is that for you?
1: Uh, no, no, I'm, I'm, I certainly get nervous. I think, that's, I think anyone who speaks in public gets nervous. Um, I'm certainly a very uh, outgoing individual. Mm-hmm. I did theater in high school, I did musical theater acting, all that sort of stuff. It kind of I used to be that quiet, you know nerdy guy that I, like many of us and many of the listeners probably are. And somehow I just found my own voice at some point and just started to be the opposite. Uh, and so I continue that with speaking and stuff. Um, yeah, you get nervous, but at the end of the day, I think if you're confident in what you're speaking about, um, that you know that your peers are interested, Uh, that's what matters most. Usually the thing I'm most nervous about is, well, people show up. So I'm Uh I'm like a self-promoter, and at the conference I'm like, hey, you're going to come to my talk. Don't go to this other guy's talk at the same time (laughs) because there's usually four or five talks going on at the same time. Yeah, that's competition. Yeah, you always have to find out like, hey, what's going on? And I don't know if you've ever been to GDC, um, Mm -mm. but there's a session called the Experimental Gameplay Workshop that runs every year. It's about two hours long. And they show all these really cool experimental games, like demos. And it's really mm. awesome. It's also very highly attended. Oh, please tell was, me you're
0: not against that one. I was against that
1: <laughs> one with the uh, the, 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 uh, the one talk I had, the panel, uh, about you know diversity in characters. Um, but then what happened is Jonathan Blow and those guys basically said, oh, we don't have enough good games this year, so we're going to cancel the workshop and just take the good games we have from this year and put them in next year's workshop. And I was like, oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm sad that people missed out on that workshop for the year, but I was personally very happy because I'm selfish.
0: I could see that. Uh, that would be difficult. I think the panel itself is kind of a little bit of a hard sell considering that I guess a lot of people are sort of like – the, the standard white space marine and may not have known what you were going to really talk about. I mean, I, I know that in uh, Mass Effect 2, I really liked, and I can't think of his character, one marine who was on uh, the main ship with you and he was in charge of arming, I believe. What was his right.
1: name? Uh, you know, I actually probably couldn't tell you either.
0: <laughs> it's been too long since I played that yeah. game. But he was an awesome character and I, I, my character was like really into him and was trying to get a relationship with him and she never could. <laughs>
1: Well, we were fortunate that we had a full room. Uh guys like, you know, Cliff Bleszinski from Epic on Gears of War was there. Um there was other guys like Clint Hawking, uh, who's at LucasArts now, were there. So there were a lot of people who were creative directors that were interested in the conversation and we got really high remarks. So Good. it told me that there was that there was a people were interested in the topic and they wanted to hear about it and they wanted it to be discussed. So I think it's something worth pushing, you know. I I said before to a friend of mine uh Jamin Brophy Warren, who runs a uh, Kill Screen magazine now, um, like when are we gonna have like the Spike Lee of our industry in terms of that kind of breakout mm-hmm. voice? Uh, and and we have the ability to do it. Uh, it's just gonna be some time for someone does it or someone funds that person, and it could be indie or it could be AAA or it could be somewhere in between.
0: I'm actually really surprised. I mean, it's not a subject I really ever thought about. I mean, the female. It's been kind of a discussion that I've had with other guests as well and, and other women who've been on, but I never really thought about that, you know, looking at it from that perspective and saying, you know, hey, why don't we have that story and why don't we have those characters? So that, that is very good. I think I'd like to see some more diverse characters, definitely in sci-fi. Definitely. Do you think you'll be doing any conventions or public speaking for games you're doing now or do companies have specific people for that?
1: Um, you know, I don't know. Mass Effect 3, you know, I would certainly love to speak about gameplay stuff at GDC if, if I'm able to. There's multiple people on the team, some, plenty of which are more qualified than me, frankly. I'm, I'm new to the team. I've only been here f- since September of last year. Okay. Uh, so, you know, I'm much more new to the franchise than they are. So it, it really depends on who wants to speak, what they want to speak about. Is there something that I'm qualified to, to speak on? Um, but that's something, you know, we, we have a, a talk going on at GDC Europe this year with one of our producers and gameplay designers about the whole way we're building creatures, which will be a really good talk. So, you know, we have good coverage, even if it's not me personally.
0: Let's talk about a bit about your history as a gamer. I understand you were actively trying to gain skills and kind of to become a game designer at the age of 15. What inspired this at such a young age?
1: It, it was, like I said, it was playing Fallout, honestly. Like, I just... I kind of knew what I wanted to do very early. I think I was very lucky that way. Um, I had really supportive parents who just said, you know, do what you love. And, you know, that's that's what you need to do. Um, my dad's a software engineer by uh, trade. So I decided that I wanted to design games. Oh, okay. But I also knew that people don't get in the industry with just ideas. You know, you have to be able to do something with them. Um, and so I basically decided I started picking up my dad's programming books taught myself how to program, then took some classes on how to program in high school, Uh, went to Virginia Tech, got a computer science degree, uh, and basically made every step towards being able to work in the industry. And I figured I would have to toil away as a programmer for a number of years um, and then eventually either start my own company and become a designer or maybe I'd get lucky along the way. And it turns out you know, I I programmed for about two years as a gameplay programmer at Raven Software uh, working on Wolfenstein. And, you know, they had no game designers, they had level designers basically, but no no gameplay guys um, kind of bridging the gap. So they asked me if I'd like to become that and that's exactly what I wanted to do. So kind of transitioned over there and haven't looked back since.
0: Nice. A lot of people like me just kind of like to sit back and enjoy the fruits of your labor. Um, I
1: think that's totally fine, too.
0: (laughs) Were you hoping to create a certain game in your mind when you said, hey, you know, I I don't want to just watch this and play this. I want to actually make this. You know, is there something that you had to inspire you to say, you know, I want a game that's just like this and there isn't that game and I'm going to make that? Or did you just kind of say, Fallout is so amazing. I want to do something just like this and, and continue on that path.
1: Yeah, I think when I started, you know, I didn't have any specific ideas of what I wanted to make. Or if I did, I do not remember them. Um, but I, I just knew I wanted to create. I've always liked creating. I used to write a lot. I used to uh, try to direct little small films. Like I said, I acted. So I, I was always had that creative streak. So this was just a, an interesting way to kind of um, use that uh, in a different way in a new emerging medium. So I didn't have an idea then, but, you know, since then I've obviously come up with millions and bazillions of ideas (laughs) that I would love to one day make. And, you know, some are goofy and some are serious. uh, And hopefully, you know, one day I'll get a chance to make those at at a company I'm working at. Um, But that's not what drives me on a day-to-day basis. You know, what drives me is just learning a lot, um, helping advance the medium, hopefully by trying and introducing new features or ideas or even just learning from the people around me, like I said. Uh, on what they know and what they've tried or, you know, their failings and learning from their failings.
0: I have a friend who's a college student in game design, and he's more qu- towards the writing end, I'd say. What advice would you give to people like him trying to get into the business at a young age right now?
1: Um, make as many games as you can. Even if you're just doing writing, the more skills that you have that you can bring to a team, the more things that you can show that you've completed, whether it's on your own or with a small team, the better off the worst thing to do is just be like, I have good ideas or I can write good dialogue because uh, there's lots of people who can do that. Okay. What What you really want is somebody who can come in and actually make a concrete impact to making the game better, whether it's coding or art or building of the actual level itself. Uh, and it's certainly writing and, and high-level design is all part of that, but that's usually not what entry-level jobs are, frankly. Um, so it, to me, it's always about make as many games as you can, like, as possible.
0: I've heard a lot of stories uh, where he's getting grouped up with other students, and they aren't pulling their weight on a project, or they're bringing the team down. Does this happen in non-academia, and are there kind of things in place to make sure that it doesn't in an actual work environment?
1: Uh, No, I think, I mean, I've certainly worked with people who I felt were not pulling their weight. Uh, I've worked with people who pulled their weight and about 20 other guys' weights because they're crazy animals who would work, you know, ridiculous hours. So I think it all happens, and it, it all depends on expectations. If 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 the expectations are you're not pulling your weight and your managers feel that way, usually if you have good managers, you'll get talked to. You know, you'll be put on a plan to try to improve your performance, and if it doesn't improve, most many people are let go. So I think that exists, but I think. Laziness exists everywhere in society or or people who aren't maybe at what they what they were hyped up to be uh that exists everywhere, and no company or industry is really immune from that.
0: It's such a unique situation kind of when you're put into teams like this, and I haven't run into a lot of other jobs where you know people are kind of divided into, into groups of large groups, you know a hundred people, seventy people, however many people, and kind of all have to collaboratively work on this kind of creative massive project, it must be very interesting to have that many different kind of personalities coming together to work on something.
1: Uh, Definitely, you know, um, like for example with Mass Effect 3, we have two studios, one in Edmonton, one in Montreal where I am Mm -hmm. working on the project together. We have, you know, all the art team, design team, sound team, you know, all the different disciplines. There's plenty of people on the the team, frankly, that I don't know because it's like 100 plus people. Uh and I just you know, I'm A not in the same office as some of them. So I don't know them face to face down the water cooler and I don't have to interact with them because what they work on is so different than what I work on. We just don't cross. Like I see the results of their work. And the uh. same and, and, and the opposite is the same too. And that's just something that happens when you work on a large project. Um, you know, you you, you don't necessarily have a personal relationship with everybody. Um and, and I imagine it's the same in film, you know, I'm I'm sure the director doesn't know everybody on the film set and there's people, and, and vice versa, right? So I think that's just the the way things go, and, and the, the key is that you have a smaller group of people within that that you are very personally related like related to, and that you talk to, and that they directly affect your performance and your job, and are able to help you. And that, you know, I've, I've always had it, all my uh, jobs, thankfully. You know, with the design department, I know everybody on the design department and I know my leads and I know, you know, the uh, creative director and the uh, executive producer and those guys. Okay. So, and that that's what I, and those are the guys I need to communicate with on a regular basis.
0: What are some of the things that you imagined about being a game designer that kind of turned out to be true and what wasn't the way you thought it would be?
1: Um, You know, I, I did a lot of research and I talked to a lot of people before I got in the industry so thankfully I kind of knew what I was getting into. I knew it would be a very difficult job in terms of just stress and hour. And it's because it's a passion industry. And what that means is basically, yes, I guess I could work a 40 hour week, but no one needs to tell me to work 45 hours. Like, there'll just be something I want to do and I'll do it because it will, I think it'll make the game better. But the problem is that you can keep doing that and you can make it 50 hours and 60 hours and 70 and you have to know when to pull back yeah. and when to push. But, it, it's all because out of creative passion of, of, doing what you love. Um, and it's, it's an interesting problem to have because I'm fortunate to do what I love, but at the same time, it, it can at times be a burden. Like at times I, I have worked on projects where I've just been like, I wish I worked a nine to five and I just didn't care about what I was working on. So I could just leave at five and just be like, I'm screwed. I'm done. I, I don't care. Um, but I don't, I'm always invested. I always really care about the quality of what what we're working on, which is a good thing at the end of the day. But, you know, like I said, maybe you don't realize unless you have worked in that situation, exactly how that feels. So that was one thing that was kind of surprising. Um, like just finding out about that, but the hours themselves, I kind of knew what I was getting into the, the difficulty of the actual just learning new skills and how fast technology moves, uh, Getting games to run on consoles and like, you know, handling all these things you never think about like memory management and Mm. fitting things on the actual DVD itself and things like that that you never, never fully consider when you were making, maybe making a PC game in school or something uh, all come to light when you start working on like AAA console games.
0: That kind of leads into my next question, which was um, your passion and obsession and and pretty much dedication to your work are really amazing. Do you think that that's required of a developer, designer to become a success now? (laughs) Considering especially that the average team is about 100, do you think you have to sacrifice everything to make it to the senior level? Um, Because you achieved that pretty soon, about five years, right?
1: Uh, Yeah. um, I I don't know if you have to sacrifice everything. I I I certainly think I've sacrificed everything, but uh, I do think you have to work your butt off, basically. And it doesn't mean you have to crunch every day of the year uh, for years and years and years. But it does mean that you need to... You need to do more than you would maybe your average hourly job or something along those lines. And I think the people who do that uh, are are the ones who who make it the best. The people I know in the industry who worked the late nights or put the extra hours in or just went the extra mile when it wasn't called for mm-hmm. uh, are the ones that are the best off that I know of. And I'm sure there's some exceptions of people who are just, you know, wunderkinds who are <laughs> just raw talent. Especially, like, some, there's some artists out there who they can model things in, like, 20 minutes that I could never do if I spent my entire rest of my life trying to get down. Um, they're just amazing at what they do. But I, I've, I've run into very few, if any, of those people.
0: Do you think there's a sense of competition considering that you have so many people on a team and they're all trying to kind of get to the point where maybe they're moving up or or being noticed or contributing, getting a chance to contribute more? Or do you think people kind of have their own slots of what they're doing and they don't really cross into that area of kind of fighting to be able to contribute?
1: Uh, Well, I think everyone is able to contribute, but yeah, I mean, the, the concept of ambition can certainly get in the way or can cause problems if you have too many people ambitious for the same job. Um, So what you can run into is three people want to become an art lead, but only one of them is qualified, or maybe none of them are qualified, or maybe there's already an art lead there, so this isn't going to happen. And and I've certainly seen that happen before. Most people are able to be professional about it, let their people know that, hey, look, I'm looking to move up in the world for these reasons. Here's why I think I'm qualified. and there's lots of tracks of things. Like people who become seniors or principals, which usually means you know you're really really good at your job and you've been you're experienced, but maybe you're not in charge. And seniors are usually afforded small amounts of control over things, right? Like you're you're in charge of one small piece of the pie, uh, and that that's often enough to appease people, because um, you need people who are ready to step in whenever that person above you goes, Mm -hmm. right? Like people quit jobs or things change or they get fired for all the time. And you're going to need the next guy to be able to step in right away. And if you don't have that group of people there, um, then you're not going to have anyone step in. So it's in the company's best interest to always keep people, you know, happy, but also ready, you know, if they do need a new leader. Um, So I've only run into a couple of instances where someone, has really butted heads over over wanting a position and maybe not getting it. Like, I can think of one. Okay. But everybody else is pretty professional you know, about that sort of thing.
0: I like to imagine that there's a giant warehouse where everyone in their teams are working in an area all collaboratively, but I know that's not true, so that's, that's kind of why no, I asked well, these Well, no, I mean, we
1: are working. I, I, don't, I don't think it gets in the way of development. I've never, I've, I've maybe seen a couple arguments happen outside of development, but I've never really seen it get in the way of development itself. Like, I've never seen someone just undercut the, you know, creative director because he wants to be the creative director or he thinks he knows better. It it just doesn't work that way because you're not going to survive long. Like, the rest rest of the team is going to turn on you and you're going to lose trust. And the second you've lost trust in this industry, like, you, you might as well not be there. So... So we are very clever. Everyone's focused on their job. Like that's like I think career stuff. That's that's secondary for most people. And I'm a, I'm personally I, I I would view myself as an ambitious person, um. But I at the same time, am am not worried about that primarily. I worry about doing my job and doing it well and making the game as good as possible. And I know if I do that, that the, my work can speak for itself at that point. And that when opportunities arise down the road, I can certainly you know be considered for those.
0: Now that you have some control over the directions of the projects you work on and you have a voice um, and how they're created, do you th- has that changed how you feel? Do you think you've kind of found your niche now that you're a senior designer? And And how do you deal with trying to put something new and creative, a creative spin on a project that you're working on, come up with those ideas?
1: Uh, it's It's been interesting. So I, I worked at Raven Software for five years um, and I actually became the lead designer there on a, an announced project um, that since got canceled and there you know you were able to kind of create from the ground up all the stuff that you wanted to put into this this new project the things that maybe you weren't able to do in the project before and having all those opportunities is awesome and overwhelming at the exact same time um but it's something i think most people like and at the same time all the potential management or leadership problems you know that i felt like i saw i was able to start working on and chiseling away and start fixing. Um, but when I decided to move over to BioWare, you know, I'm coming to a team that's made two really highly rated games, Mass Effect 2, 1, Game of the Year, and many, many, many websites uh, and, and publications. And so I kind of turned it down to learn from these people, don't necessarily push them in ways. And now that I've been here for a few months and I I get why they're making certain decisions or doing things in a certain way, now I'm starting to like filter back like, hey, well what if we did it this way? Or I've seen it done this way before and it worked for these reasons. Or I've seen it done that way and it didn't work and here's why. Um, but I needed to understand why the company and the project were making the decisions before I just opened my mouth and said, no, you shouldn't do it that way because that's not how I did it before. Uh, that that would never work. Mm-hmm. So it's it's been an interesting like taking a step back to take two steps forward kind of uh, situation. But one that I think is really personally rewarding because you learn a lot and you learn to observe around you like w- what's going on and maybe start questioning things that you never thought you would question with the development process.
0: I'm sure it's good to kind of go to different companies and see that they do things differently, and then you kind of are in a position, like you're saying, to ascertain, like, this is really a much better way to do that, or no, I think this would be better. That's a good position for you to be in. Nice. Certainly. Um, Let's talk about Raven Software a little bit, like you were saying. Um, Your first game that you participated in from start to finish was Wolfenstein, I believe. Yep. It's kind of a rather dark first-person shooter, which takes place in the town let's see, Eisenstadt.
1: Yeah, if, Eisenstadt, Yes. Yep.
0: If you could share the plot with us, that gets pretty complicated if you haven't played the series from start to finish.
1: Uh, well, you know, Wolfenstein started in the uh, 90s. Uh, well, Wolfenstein 3D really did uh, from id Software, and it was all about BJ Blazkowicz uh, escaping Castle Wolfenstein. Um, and, you know, your entire goal was to escape Castle Wolfenstein. You, you ended up killing Hitler. It's kind of an over-the-top gory shooter it was the first first person shooter um and so it kind of created a genre um and then there was like return to castle wolfenstein which uh I believe splash damage and um oh i'm forgetting the other company's name and i apologize uh they they worked on and that was kind of like a story driven game where you were again bj blaskowitz and you returned to get to castle wolfenstein and kind of Take out the Nazis. Um, and the whole game world, I guess, is, it's not realistic. It's, there's sci fi and there's occult stuff and, like, you know, there's Nazi zombies and mm-hmm. they have magic. It's kind of like if, if the Nazis had all that stuff that they were researching, the occult was real, mm-hmm. what would happen? Um, and so we kind of basically did that with Wolf and, like, what we just called it Wolfenstein for the 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 latest one and the whole idea was you know well let's just take it to the next level And we had giant mechanized suits that shot like laser cannons that basically um, made people disappear and and, you know vanish in in moments Uh, we had crazy anti-gravity stuff and we had like an alternate uh, reality not alternate reality but it was like another universe like on top of yours that you could basically see and you could see things very differently and open up new paths so it was a interesting you know take on the series uh it it was you know I don't know if we broke any ground in first person shooters necessarily, but I think it was a really cool fun game uh I kind of you know worked out it. it was a really good learning experience for our first project too
0: What was that like finally achieving your dream and being on kind of a real game team
1: uh it was it was awesome um you know i I got very lucky that i I got into. Out of college, I got an internship, and then I only worked for a month before I got a full-time offer to Raven. Uh, then I jumped over there and moved to Wisconsin. Um, and just being able to work on a AAA game, like, as my first game, was, was really amazing. I I just assumed I was going to have to work on Barbie's Dream Horse Adventure, you know, <laughs> for a few years. Doing or, the moves. Right. Or even worse, like, working, like, the defense industry. I'm from the D.C. area, so working, uh. like, the defense industry with, like, just to make money while I try to get my you know, games made to get noticed. But thankfully, uh, it kind of worked out really fast for me. Um, And I think I just got got part lucky and, you know, part of it is hard work. Um, And it was the timing as well. I think the the industry is very different today, so it's really much harder for students now than maybe it was in 2005 when I got in the industry. What was your role in that game? Um, So I started out as a gameplay programmer for the first couple years, and that was kind of like a mix of a game designer slash programmer. So I did lots of – I wrote a lot of the weapon stuff, and uh, I there was a whole vehicle system that ended up getting cut that got written, um, lots of core stuff like that. And then I moved to game designer, um, which meant at that point I was kind of – I wasn't actually building them myself, but I was in charge of a small team that was doing a bunch of levels. And on top of that, I was in charge of the design for like the weapons and all the other things I had been building. Okay. But I would work with the programmers who were much better programmers than I ever was. Like Frankly, I'm, I was not a great programmer. I'm a mediocre programmer. Um, so working with them to say, well, okay, look, the weapon's unbalanced like this. What if we change this, this, and this? And kind of leading that that direction and working closely with the creative director to make sure that his ultimate vision is being passed down to the rest of the team. Explain
0: to me the difference between a game designer and a game programmer. I've had people that were kind of doing level designs, and I understand that as a game designer, but what is the difference between a designer and a programmer in roles?
1: Um, You know, it can be the exact same, frankly, at at some places. It really depends on the company. Um, So at Raven, there were no gameplay designers until I became one. Okay. So effectively, to me, the gameplay programming team... Was the gameplay design team, but oh. they were also responsible for the full implementation, which can go down into the low-level nitty-gritty stuff of all the all their work. Okay. So, um, you know, at Bioware we have a gameplay team, and we have gameplay designers and gameplay programmers. And there's kind of like um, the gameplay designers work on maybe a little higher level. It's, it's, we don't just do doc work. Like I'm sitting there coding every day in Unreal Script. Um, You know, I work on different various powers and things like that. But if there was like a low-level problem with, let's say, the aim assist or, you know, there was a bug where visual effects weren't displaying, that's not something I'm going to go fix. That's one of the programmers is going to take care of that. I see. Uh, so usually the designers are worrying about what's fun and the the programmers are offering a lot of the time <laughs> the tools to build upon with that fun, so it's almost like they give you like the foundation, and it's it's all the all they do all the hard work, frankly, um, and we just start piecing things together in, in different ways. That's kind of the way that I view it.
0: Okay, was it easy as kind of the newbie to make friends at Raven Software when you're kind of a, a new fresh team member? I guess I'm asking if it was really work oriented or if you got to know that team really well.
1: No, I, I I think we knew very people. I knew people very intimately at the company. Um, like I said, I'm very outgoing, so I make friends very fast. You, you go out for beers, you make friends that way. There's a lot of people that were my age. We had similar interests, similar uh, attitudes, and, you know, personalities. And so those are a group of people that you get along with. Um, and so I, I think I fit in very well, very, fairly fast. The first few months are, you don't know many people, but once you kind of, you know, six months in you you kind of settled you you you're comfortable in your job, you don't feel like the uh f n g anymore <laughs> you you start you start really coming out of your shell and, and talking with people and and becoming their friends and by the end of it, you know, I felt that i was i at least knew almost everybody at the company on some personal level, and I was friends with well over fifty percent of them like I would consider them somebody I would god have a drink with and hang out with any time
0: nice. Let's talk about some things that are in your blog now. Um, with what you've admittedly said was kind of a lukewarm reception for Quake 4 under their belt, some of the designers for that game joined your team on Wolfenstein. And you've said that the issues that occurred on Quake were kind of occurring again on Wolfenstein, and it was bringing the atmosphere down into depression. And you stepped up to fill that much-needed leadership spot to help troubleshoot those problems. I guess it would be a good time to ask what a senior designer does in as part of a team whose job it normally would be to give direction in a situation like that, is that a senior designer thing or why was there no one there to kind of step up in that situation?
1: I I don't know if it's a senior designer thing. And I actually wasn't even a senior designer at that point. I was just a programmer when it started and then just a mid-level designer. Um, But what it really is is when you have a team of hundreds of people, uh, let's say you have a team of 100 people, There's no way that the guy at the top or the girl at the top, you know, the creative director, let's say, is going to be able to affect what the most junior designer, or the most junior artist is doing. Right. Mm -hmm. Like there's there's many people in between them before they like that information filters down. And that's natural. There's a reason that they usually say you should only manage seven people around. Uh, at a time and anymore, like you really can't actually effectively manage and it's because you just can't have that personal relationship or insight and know what they're doing so what you really need is you need leadership and you need leadership throughout your organization so you have built-in leadership it doesn't mean it's necessarily good leadership but you have built-in leadership it's usually managers but the mistake is to think that a good manager is a good leader or that a good leader is a good manager these are two separate skill sets uh, and not everybody has both and I think a lot of companies, unfortunately, think that if you're good at one, you're good at the other. Um, but when once you become a manager, uh, this is something I certainly noticed once I became a lead, people will come to you with different sets of problems and they won't talk to you about certain things because now you you represent the man, for lack of a better term, yes. right? You, you represent one of the people at the top um, of, of a department or of the team that's, that's in charge of something. Um, so what you need are people to kind of rally people together in the trenches. I actually did a talk at uh, the IGDA leadership forum. It's my first ever industry talk about leadership in the trenches. And what that really is, is the ability from wherever you are in an organization to be able to affect people below you at the same level as you and above you um, in a positive manner. And so what that means is if there's people above you who are making mistakes or there's Grumbling on the team, maybe you make constructive criticism of, hey, listen, when you say this sort of thing in an email, it comes across in this way, and the team isn't taking it the way you intend it. You might want to address that, uh, and hopefully you have a receptive person to towards that. With people on the same level as you, it can be something as just being someone to listen, like that will listen. You know, I, I, there, there was a lot of it was a very difficult project cycle for us on Wolfenstein. There was a lot of restarting of the project, and like we didn't know what we wanted to do. Um And frankly, that just leads to a lot of bitching and whining, mm-hmm. um, and that's not constructive. So when the people are doing that, talking to them, talking them through it, and then finding ways for them to be uh, more positive, positive in, in making a, a changes to the game, and not just you know being defeatist and giving up and saying, "Well, no one's ever going to listen to me, so I'm just going to whine over this over beers." And that's something that I I think I did well, and it wasn't just me. There was a group of us um, who's kind of stepped in at Raven and. We we I think like 20 of us ended up being on that project for four plus years, and most of those guys um, were the ones who kind of stepped in and said, well, I, if I'm going to stick it out on this project, we're going to change things around here. And by kind of you know doing the things the way you wanted the rest of the team to do them, uh, when when new people came onto the team, they saw those they saw those actions and they, they replicated them, and so suddenly the culture of the team changed. And so you know that that's really important. Like you, you just need to be able to lead on all those all those sorts of levels. I'm not sure if that answers your question.
0: It does. It sounds like mentorship almost. Um, how do you do that without kind of sounding condescending to the people below you? You know, how do you really be effective when you're kind of on the same level as some people and then above some people and below some people? It's a kind of an interesting place to be.
1: I don't know if there's a good answer for that. You know, frankly, I never worried about being condescending Uh and I I can certainly be very aggressive at times, so I'm sure I came off as an ass to some people, (laughs) but I think genuinely people understood that I I cared so deeply about the project that I was just working not for my own personal, like, you know, trying to get myself promoted or something like that, that I was legitimately just trying to make the project better. And also I had mentors around me, like I had a really great creative director, Eric Beesman, who... Uh, once things were going bad and I was kind of in a, you know, in a funk and I was kind of getting angry about things, helped it directed my energy in different ways or said, well, what about this? What if you did this for me to give me an idea for how we could design this piece? Um, and once I started getting people showing me how to do that, then I was able to show others how to do that as well. So I think it's kind of a mix of things, um, around you, the circumstances that you have.
0: That actually leads into something that I've been wanting to ask as well. Um, For me, MMOs can be really addictive, especially since I don't really want to sleep at night. I kind of lay down at 12 or 1 and my brain races with all the things I need to do or haven't done for this podcast, actually, and I can't shut it off. So I have to watch kind of that part of me and make sure I don't get sucked into World of Warcraft, never to return. Right. Um, when things are hard for you at work, how do you go about channeling that anger and frustration you're talking about into a positive form rather than just drinking or, in my case, losing yourself in a game?
1: I, I don't know if I've personally been able to do that, frankly. To be completely honest, I I've probably had more negative behaviors than I have positive behaviors in my life in, the, in that manner. Uh, so a Raven, for example, I mean... I. I go out and I drink a decent amount. I mean, I I don't drink every night or anything like that. But when I go out and drink, I probably drink a large amount. And I'm six two, two 230 pounds, mm-hmm. so I'm a big dude. I can <laughs> <laughs> I, I can take ten drinks or something without a problem. So frankly, I've done things like that, which is not a very good way because then I it's also have to be like hard. A, yeah, well, there's that. But I'm also a lifelong insomniac. Um, So I actually had the same problem as you do, where my head just starts spinning on a problem, but it'll be a work problem, mm. and I can't turn my brain off unless I'm distracted. But the only way to distract myself would be playing a video game or watching a movie, which is fine, but I could never do those things and just fall asleep watching it or playing a game. So the second I'd go to bed and try to put my head down, then work, work would come back up, and then <laughs> I, I would suddenly it's 7 in the morning, I haven't slept, or it's 6 in the morning, I'm like, I'm going to take a drink just, just to try to get to sleep, right? Mm -hmm. not positive behaviors. So since then, the things that I've done is, A, try to not let it build up that bad. Um, I try to get a more regular sleep. I try not to get that stressed out, which means knowing when to cut back on hours or talk to your manager about your hours if necessary, knowing when to take vacation. So like I said, I'm going on vacation next week. I never really went on vacation at my last job because I never was going to go anywhere. And I'm not really going anywhere next week. But I just said, you know what? I have a week off. I might as well just use it in the summer while I have time, relax, and then I know, you know, pushing the game towards its March ship date is going to be kind of difficult and a lot of work just because that's the natural cycle of games. Mm-hmm. So, to get ready for that, let's just make sure that I'm as rested as possible uh, instead of going in kind of already really half tired. Um, and doing things like that. And frankly, like, moving to Montreal was a good thing for me because I'm kind of a big city guy. Okay. Uh, I grew up right outside of DC. I, I like bigger cities. I, I like lots of things around me. I like noise. I don't need to live in the suburbs. I'm single. Um, so it's given me a lot of distractions outside of work. I have a lot of friends uh, that I've made in the city who who don't work with me. They they could work in the other, uh, you know, Ubisoft or IDAS or some of the other companies up here in Montreal, or they're just, you know, people who went to college here who I've met through a variety of people, uh, and that's a really great way to just distract me from my work, and it. I get to do things that you know, maybe I d- didn't normally get to do, and so now I'm not as stressed out, I I don't worry about work nearly as much, so I think just going through that cycle and kind of having done the bad stuff, I needed to do it once so I knew not what not to do the second time.
0: I see. I was actually going to ask you about that move uh, in July. You took the position, or maybe it was September, as you're saying, in to, at Bioware Malt- Montreal to work as a lead designer on Mass Effect Three. I think that's the third or fourth time in your blog that, at least, that you talked about when you've gone through a move, and as far as the location for a job, and especially one in another country like this. How has picking up and having to start over d- affect your friendships that you had, maybe at Raven or some of the some of them around here? Did you end up keeping those, or was that difficult?
1: Um, yeah, it's certainly difficult to leave my friends. I think that was probably the, le- the hardest thing. All of the friends that I had in Wisconsin were from Raven. Uh, I'm still good friends with many of them. Uh, I, I try to talk to my really good friends that I worked with for many years on a regular basis, whether it be IM or on their Facebook or whatever. Um, so I, I value those relationships, and those are people that I'm hoping to work with again some point, you know, down the road. A, Somewhere, hopefully, our, our paths will cross. I've really only moved a couple times for jobs. I when I got into the industry, I got the job in Wisconsin, so I left D.C. to go there, which was not a problem at all because I just was ready to start my career. And frankly, moving to Montreal, I, I loved the city when I saw it. Um, I wasn't personally happy in Wisconsin. Like the the company was great and everything was going well there, but I wasn't personally happy in the city. So when the chance came to you know move along, move on finding a city to kind of fit my personality better was a, a huge thing. And I was actually near the top of my list. It was like, you know, company and game quality and then location, like just being somewhere mm-hmm. with, I will like, um, and that's just, you know, again, I had to kind of learn the hard way that I get kind of not down necessarily, but you know, I, I'm not the same when I'm in a city where I, I, am not enjoying myself nearly as much. I have to work a lot much harder to, uh, enjoy myself And here it just comes very naturally. There's lots of things to do, you know, on a regular basis. Actually moving, you know, moving countries is kind of a pain in the butt. Uh, Thankfully, you you know, thankfully EA, you know, Bioware, they uh, help out with most of the hard work there. And, you know, you just have to show up and sign some papers and, that sort of thing, so it hasn't been too bad Canada Canada's a great great country Montreal's a great city, and there's a huge development scene here, so I can't recommend it more. you know. I actually have a few friends that I worked with at Raven who are now moved to Canada, one moved here to Montreal to work at u b Montreal another one uh starting at u b Toronto very soon, so you know awesome. I'm clearly not the only one you know there's a lot of good jobs up here, and our dollar is now stronger than the american <laughs> dollar so uh stop you know, defecting to Canada. <laughs>
0: Uh, I've been reading your blog, like I said, and I'd like to jump back to that a little bit. Sure. Um, you kind of strike me as a guy who enjoys a good party but has a serious darker side. Uh,
1: probably, <laughs> probably very accurate.
0: I was really impressed with how you opened up about the kind of roller coaster up and downs of being a game designer in your post, Reflections of a Five Year Vet. It actually seemed incredibly pers- personal to me compared to some of the other blog posts I was reading, which were, I guess, more work oriented. What was different about that post for you, and why did you choose to to share so much?
1: I I think I'm a, if you if if you ever hang out with me, people who hang out with me know that I'm a very open and honest person about everything. I think, um, possibly too open at times, but that's just who I am. <laughs> I wear my emotions on my sleeves. So if you know if you've angered me, you'll know in two seconds. I won't you know hold it in and be angry about it. You know, and then like three weeks later, you find out. Like you'll know right then, like, no, I don't like that. Here's why. I like your picture. Um, so uh, that is what I've – that attitude is kind of what I've taken to work because that's the only way I know how to be, frankly. Um, and so when I was thinking about, like, I've worked in this industry for five years. That's really cool. I was just like, well, how has How have things gone, you know, in my five years? And uh, that made me start realizing, you know, well, what did I like? What didn't I like? What would I have changed and I started just running through that through my head and I kind of just needed to get it out, like writing things down for me as a, is a method of release, the same way creating is a method of release for ideas. Um, and so I kind of just wanted to A, share that experience with people, but B, kind of write it just to get it out there. Like it doesn't bother me to say like, these are the things that I've done that are personally flawed or these are the things that I feel like I've done well. Um, I, I think it just... It it was just kind of a personal essay that was inside of me, and it was running through my head all the time that just made sense to write it down.
0: Nice. It seems like you've kind of passed through the fire, as it were, and made a place for yourself, and if I'm judging from your blog, you seem calmer and happier than you did maybe five years ago.
1: I think I'm actually probably the same, frankly. I'm probably happier in terms of my personal life just because I'm in a different city, but... I'm probably not any calmer. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Will you ever be calmer?
1: No, I, I don't know. Maybe when I'm 80. Okay.
0: Are you content with your career now that you found that balance, or do you think you'll always be striving per- for perfection in the years to come and continue to battle
1: with that? I, I think that'll always be a battle. I think, you know, I, I always want to be the best at everything that I do, and that could be if I try to play a a game online with people, Mm-hmm. Like, I don't I don't play a ton of multiplayer games, and the reason I don't play a ton of multiplayer games is because I'm not the best, and I get frustrated <laughs> that I suck. But I know to be the best, i got to spend hundreds of hours, and I don't have that time. Right. So I just would rather not play it than, like, find out that I suck. <laughs> uh, and, like, literally, like, that that's exactly why I don't play tons of multiplayer, or at least competitive multiplayer games. I play lots of co-op. Um, but it's just, I'm the same way in my career, you know. I'm not stupid enough to think I'll ever be the best game designer in the world, but I'm always just trying to be the best that I can possibly be, and I I want to you know make sure that I'm doing very well with the people around me and helping them and teaching them and as well as having them teach me at the same time, and that's like really important. And I want to work on the top rated games. Frankly, I mean that there's a significant reason I came to Bioware. You know, I love the Mass Effect franchise, and it was one of the top rated games, and I've always wanted to work on the top rated games. Um, I told uh-huh. my friends I didn't want to work on the games that – I wanted to work on the games everyone was trying to copy, not the one being, doing the copying. Yes. Um, and and I've, I've been fortunate enough to get that kind of uh, ability. But I think I'm always going to fight that personal life versus professional life battle. I think that's just – like I said, it's a passion industry, and you have to find that line. And there's, there's times where I want to just go out and hang out with friends and party and drink – and then there's other times where I'm just going to work my butt off and you won't see or hear from me. And if you do talk to me, I'm in a grumpy mood where I just don't want to talk because I am just I want to be left alone. Um, and we'll see, you know. I'm not going to be single forever, hopefully. So, you know, maybe that changes, you know, with somebody else in, in the world as well. We don't know, or I, I certainly don't. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how things go in the future.
0: hmm I've heard a lot of other designers say that they they have issues when they play a game where they always wanna enjoy it as they used to, but now that they're trained, they can't stop looking at it with a designer's eye. Do you find yeah. you have that issue?
1: Yeah, games are broken forever. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> uh I mean, I don't fully have that issue. I, I can turn it off to an extent, but no, you notice lots of things, or you'll be you'll be immersed in the game. The, yeah, the best way I'll describe it is when you get you know when you get really immersed in the game and you're just in the zone, and you wouldn't notice anything around you. You wouldn't notice if someone was screaming behind you or your cats were doing something. You're You're just in that zone. But then what'll happen is some small glitch will happen in the game and at that, the second that happens, like your developer brain will turn on you like that's a streaming issue or oops, <laughs> someone messed up the sound there or oops, that trigger misfired or like it just automatically happens because you're trained to look for that stuff. Uh-huh. So it's not that you can't appreciate games is that you're constantly being reminded that it's a game maybe more than you're used to and you know how they're made. So some of the magic is gone. Games are smoke and mirrors, right? You know, it's really well crafted smoke and mirrors, but if you ever looked anywhere you're not supposed to look, you would see the seams and you would see the stitching and it's really bad and ugly. Um, a great example would be, I remember in Wolfenstein, we had this like time slow mechanic, which has been a well used mechanic in lots of games. And we were prototyping something and someone said, Hey, let's make it like at the highest upgrade time stop. Uh, and we did it. It was it played really cool. And then we started like playing the actual game and looking around, and all the effects look terrible from like the side angle, right? Like a bullet tracer looks horrible from a certain angle. Uh-huh. Uh, all these like the smokes, and you can just tell that the smoke and fire was two D uh, when it's frozen in time. <laughs> and like literally, like yeah, no, there's no way we're gonna fix all those problems. So we're just gonna not let you ever stop time. <laughs> you can only slow it. And it wasn't the only reason, but like that that was a significant concern. Uh, and it's because things are crafted in a certain way. Uh, so, yeah, you know, Systems as a developer, but that's, I- I'm fine with that. You know, I think you learn some too from playing games uh, and seeing what other people are doing.
0: I really liked your post about, um, I'm just gonna simplify it to non-designer talk, but having to, that the person playing the game should never have to worry about saving at any given point, because I find that that's a pet peeve of mine, and especially like in games like Lego like, oh, Harry Potter or something like that, where you get to a point and you die and then you have to go back. And replay like a good 10 minutes to get to the point where you can save again. And I really love to see a game from the future where they are kind of auto-saving every five minutes or something like that. And it's a simple thing, but it just definitely makes gameplay, it affects gameplay for me for sure.
1: Definitely. Yeah, I, I don't understand why in this day and age players should ever have to worry about their save game effect, basically. Like you play an MMO, wherever you leave the game is you know, where you are. Mm-hmm. If your game crashes your Characters in the same state, right? Right, you don't replay that, that stuff, and that's because MMOs are online and there's tons of people and they're saving that stuff out. But I, I think the same mentality could apply to single player games. That I, I was the kind of player when I'm playing Half Life, like I would, you know, quick save, I'd enter a hallway. I get to the other end of the hallway, there was no combat. It was it was three, five seconds of trekking. I would quick save again so I didn't have to walk down that five <laughs> seconds of hallway. Like, I'm like, well, I did that already. I've already beat that part. I don't, I just want to move forward. Right. And I, I think that, you know, I don't play games for challenge necessarily. Like, I want some challenge, but I don't, I don't like the games that just kick you in the butt over and over and over. Those aren't fun to me. Mm-hmm. But I just want to experience something. So save game is something that's like it just it ruins that like the fact that you have to worry about well when was the last save or oh I gotta go now to this thing that I have going on but I, I need to get to the next save point and it's ten minutes away, even games that save every five minutes, um, there's times where I'm like this is I, I can't believe I have to play this whole combat again <laughs> to to die at this boss, or or my favorite thing is I can't believe I have to watch this cinematic every time I reload the game and you can't uh, skip through it yeah yeah like it's. It, it it's it's almost a sin like to me personally like that's just I I, I hate it, so I, I would love to see games get away from that or just make that more automated so it's it's effectively invisible to the player.
0: Definitely so. I mean, I'm playing Elder Scrolls Oblivion, which, given, is like a 10-year-old game, but I don't like to have a point where I'm like, oh, you know what, I need to go to the store, but I don't know if I should stop playing now, because I bet by the time I have to go in 10 minutes, there won't be a save point. I better stop. Right. (laughs) You know,
1: know, in some ways, the old school was slightly better in that you could save anywhere. Like, now that's kind of gone away. Mm -hmm. But you have to remember to save anywhere, which is what sucked. (laughs) Like, I think we all know that. Well, I think we've all done it at some point, if any, especially anyone who's played PC games like back in the day, where they saved it just as someone's rocket was going to hit you in the face and you died, and that was your only save you yes. had. Oh. Like the last hours, and you're like,
0: <laughs> F5, I hate you.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Especially when you would put it in F5 and F6, and you're like, what ass would put these two <laughs> buttons next to each other? Why is it not F5 and F12? Aw. Oh. So, I'm certainly glad we have auto-saves and that stuff now. But mm-hmm. at the same time, like I just wish, yeah, it things were more frequent. It's interesting because I I find in general this is a broad generalization, and there there are cases on both sides. But Eastern games, like Japanese games, are more likely to give me very really long uh, times between checkpoints than a lot of many Western games, at least the Western ones that I play. Uh, and I think it's something to do with the cha- the challenge thing. I think challenges you're more likely to see it in, in the more old-school style of game or the more Japanese RPG or things like that. But then there's games like God of War, that I don't get a save point for right. 10 minute, a proper save point for 10 minutes. But that game has like intermediate save points where if you die, you only have to play a couple minutes. But if you actually want to quit the game, you have to get to a proper save point. Which, oh, that's this I whole see. mechanic. I don't quite understand why, why that's necessary. Why not just always save the game fully? Um, I can understand so.
0: death consequences and wanting you know, wanting the player to think, I guess, twice before they just randomly throw away their life by doing something stupid, but, but yes, you're right.
1: <laughs> no, no, you're, you're right, and so I'm talking, like, in generality. Like If you're making a survival horror game, making the player have limited bullets and, you know, not feeling comfortable at all times is, is great, but you don't need to artificially do it necessarily with the saves themselves, right? Like, yes, you don't want the player just to just feel like they can just reload and, like, there's no consequences for anything, mm-hmm. uh, but there's a fine line, and I think that we too often track on the wrong side of that
0: we're getting close to ending now is there anything you didn't get to say about any of the topics that we covered earlier
1: uh, no I think I think I said I said everything <laughs> I wanted to say
0: excellent well thank you to Manver for being here you can read his blog post about gaming at designrampage.blogspot.com which I will link on the site or follow him on Twitter at Manvir Hair Hair is spelled like heir to the throne h-e-i-r um, I'd like to say thank you to my sponsor, Map If you'd like to support the podcast, please click on their icon at Genesee.com or join the Gray Area Podcast group on Map You can find me on Twitter at Gray Area Podcast at Facebook slash Gray Area Podcast or on iTunes. If you have any gray areas in your relationships or just need a new perspective, please email me your questions at geneseegray at yahoo.com. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next week with a new episode.